will miss the tribulation. You see, I believe in what is commonly referred to as the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. This means that the church will be taken out of this earth before the tribulation ever begins. This is seen in part by what transpires here with John. So let's look at what is next on the prophetic calendar. And I believe that we're listening for a sound. We're not looking for signs. And let's see what we can expect when we get to heaven. But let's come back to verse number one. Let's take this first point here, the rapture of the believer. The rapture of the believer. Notice the words given to John by this voice, Jesus Christ, where he says there, come up hither, come up hither. Again, I see this as an interesting parallel. The invitation is given by Jesus Christ, and the voice is the one that is speaking like a trumpet. Do we know of anything else of a trumpet in the Scriptures? Chapter 1, verse 10 talks about Jesus Christ as his voice as a trumpet. But we also know, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that when the rapture takes place, what is the sound that we're listening for is that trumpet sound. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, where it talks about that all those that are asleep in Jesus and those that are alive, they'll be caught up together. They're going to be changed because that trumpet is going to sound. What a powerful thing that is spoken here. But I also see this come up hither very similar to what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14. You remember verse number 1 of John 14, where Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. But we get troubled about a lot of things, don't we? But I'm here to remind you today, don't let your heart get troubled with a mess that we're in in this world. Because if you believe in God, Jesus said, Believe also in me. Because he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. You know what I see here in in Revelation chapter 4, verse number 1? In essence, Jesus is calling up John, not in his body. His body is still there on the Isle of Patmos, but in spirit, John is brought up to Jesus. And my friend, I'm telling you, that rapture is going to be happening soon, I believe. I'm listening for that trumpet because when that trumpet sounds, that voice calling out of Jesus Christ saying, come up hither, you and I are going to be with our Lord forever. Now, I understand the main thrust of Revelation chapter 4 is not necessarily just all about the rapture, but I cannot help but see the beautiful analogy that is given in his first couple verses. In fact, when you look at this uh, parallel, along with other arguments throughout Scripture, there are some wonderful building blocks that are put together for the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. 
You see, when I look at verses 1 through 2, John's perspective of what is going on on the earth is the same as the church. It is from heaven. Now, why should you and I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church? I'm going to give you a few reasons to why we ought to believe in this. I want you to hold your place here in Revelation, and I want you to turn back to the book of Daniel, if you would. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter number 9. Daniel chapter number 9. Now, I cannot go over extensively all of the things in this passage. In fact, tonight I I may do more of that, and I'll, I'll... um, I'll share some of those things with you at a later time. But I want you to notice the, why we ought to believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. On the screen are going to be put some of these beliefs here of the pre-trib rapture. First of all, the nature and scope of Daniel's 70 weeks. Now look with me, if you will, at Daniel chapter 9, verse number 24. The Bible says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. And when you look at the remaining part of verse 24, there are six things that are going to be accomplished through these 70 weeks. And then verses 25 to 27, then give us a package together. Now, again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this, but I'd encourage you today to read through it. If you read through it today, what will you be reading? Well, let me back you up a little bit in Daniel chapter 9, the first couple verses. Daniel is a captive in Babylon. Years before, Israel had disobeyed God, had rebelled against God, and God said, all right, I'm going to have you go into captivity, and the people were taken out of the land, and they are in Babylon. So that's where Daniel is. Daniel has found favor with the king there in Babylon, but one day he's reading from the Old Testament scriptures, the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, all of a sudden, he is struck by something amazing. He looks at this book of Jeremiah, and he realizes God had promised that there would only be so much time of captivity, and guess what? We are nearing the end of those 70 years that are given. And so immediately, Daniel shuts his Bible, and he gets down on his knees, and he prays before God, and he says, Oh God, forgive us for our sins. All of Israel, all of Jerusalem, everybody who says they are a national Israelite, we are asking, I am asking for forgiveness for our sins, for the reason we are here. And would you know it in Daniel chapter 9, God sends an angel by the name of Gabriel to give an answer to Daniel's prayer. Wouldn't you like to have answers to prayer that quick? Now, sometimes we don't always get those answers, but God does answer prayer. And God comes to Daniel and gives an answer, and that answer begins in verse 24. Seventy weeks. Basically, can I interpret what the angel says? The angel says, all right, Daniel, 
You're coming to the end of these 70 years here, and you're going to get back to the land. But I want to know something. I want you to know something. There is something planned. Notice in verse 24 who it's for. Notice it says, thy people, who are Daniel's people? What nationality would they be? Jewish people, Israelites. And he says, and upon thy holy city. What's the holy city? That's Jerusalem. So what Gabriel is saying, look, Daniel, for you and your people, for your city, Jerusalem, there are 70 weeks determined. They say weeks. You talking just a week as we know it from Sunday to Saturday? No, as we compare Scripture and as we get an understanding of the text, the word week has a reference to a seven-year period. You remember Jacob when he worked for his uncle, for his wife, and he worked seven years? And that trickster Jacob got tricked by his future father-in-law and found out that his father-in-law gave the sister instead of the one he really loved. So when he came back to Laban, he said, look, he says, I'll work another week, seven years for Rachel, the one I want, and, and then Laban gave her to him. The word week here literally means seven years. So what we're looking at is the angel Gabriel, as a messenger from God, says there are 70 weeks or 490 years that God is going to do something with his people. Very quickly, and again, I'll probably go through this tonight. The first one is seven weeks, 49 years. From the time that the uh, uh, command was given to go back to the city, to restore the city, that's seven weeks have gone by. 62 weeks now are determined from the time the city is ready all the way to the Messiah when he presents himself to Israel. You know when that was? We just celebrated a couple weeks ago, Palm Sunday, when Jesus presented himself to the people there. But there's something that happens. Seven weeks, 62 weeks. How many weeks is that? You know your math here today? That's 69. Something happens between 69th week and 70th week, two major things. One is Messiah is cut off. Several days later, Jesus died on the cross. The next thing that happens is the destruction of Jerusalem. That happens in 70 AD. But a long story short is bringing it down to this. There is one week, seven years, that God is yet to fulfill on this earth to his people Israel. And that is coming in the tribulation days. You say, Pastor, how do you know it's those uh, uh, seven years? How do you know that that tribulation period is those seven years? Well, think about this for just a moment. The nature of the tribulation is a time of God's wrath that is poured out. It is a time of judgment that is upon the earth. And those seven years are, are of God's wrath and God's judgment are a time of totality of those seven years. There are some who say, well, we'll be raptured halfway through the tribulation. They split those seven years. There are some that say, well, we'll be raptured about three-quarters of the way through the tribulation. Again, they split those seven years. 
My friend, I want to tell you something. Those 70 weeks that God gave to Daniel are for Daniel and his people and the city of Jerusalem. You and I, who are not part of Israel physically, but we are part of the church, the body of believers, that tribulation period is not for us. We'll be raptured out. Now, have I lost you? Thank you. Just one person said no. I'm going to start again. No, I'm just kidding. I'm... Now, number two reason why I believe in the tribulation is 2 Thessalonians, and I want you to turn there. I'm just having you turn to a couple passages. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. And this argument is the removal of the restrainer. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Now you say, Pastor, I can't find these that fast. That's all right. Just listen. There'll be no problem. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. The Bible says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked... Now, if you have a King James Bible, maybe other translations do it. But notice wicked is capital W. That means it's referring to a person here. This is referring to the Antichrist. We could say, and then shall that wicked one be revealed. But he can't be revealed until something is removed out of the way. What is removed out of the way? All right. Some of you are speeding my sermon up. You said the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. I believe it's referencing the Holy Spirit. You see, the Thessalonian believers who Paul wrote to thought they had missed the tribulation. They said, oh my, things are hard down here on this earth. It seems like everything's lawless. There's problems left and right everywhere we look. We must be in the tribulation. What we see around us looks like the tribulation. Paul said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not in the tribulation. And here's why I can tell you you're not in the tribulation. Because the one who restrains evil has not been removed yet. Now, who's strong enough to restrain evil? Who's more powerful than Satan? We say, well, you know, I I think this refers to a government. Let me just tell you something. There is no government formed on this earth that is stronger than the evil powers of Satan. But God is much stronger and is able to restrain evil. And the Holy Spirit, who is God, guess where he dwells? In believers. So the Bible says that when that restrainer is removed, well, how is the restrainer removed? Think about this. When the rapture takes place, how many of you are saved here today? Would you raise your hand for just a moment? Now think about if the rapture took place right in this snap. You'd all be gone. You'd all be gone. Now, hopefully you wouldn't be left here. Hopefully you wouldn't be one that would say, where did everybody go? They got out for lunch pretty quick, I'll tell you. No, no, that's how fast the rapture takes place. But the Holy Spirit, where does he reside right now in this world? He resides in your heart as a believer. And think about it, when the rapture takes place, the Holy Spirit is gone out of this earth. Now, it doesn't change his ministry. He still has a ministry on this earth but his restraining ministry is now done. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is a powerful argument for 
the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. You can go back to Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to get back there. Another reason for the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is the absence of the church in Revelation 4 through 19, or really through the remainder of the book. It's amazing to me how in chapter 1 and 2 and 3, there is talk about the church, and then it's silent. Let me give you another thing. Number four, the blessed hope. You ever heard this verse, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where the Bible says, looking for that blessed hope. Could you say those words with me? Looking for that blessed hope. Now, that's a great verse. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know what's exciting for me is on Sunday after Sunday, every so often I can say, folks, I don't care how tough this world gets. I don't care what problems are going on in your life. There is a blessed hope that is coming soon. It is Jesus Christ. Now imagine I got up here this morning. I said, folks, we got a blessed hope. And all of you went, amen. We got a blessed hope. And you go even louder, amen. I said, now that blessed hope is we got seven years of tribulation on this world we got to suffer through. I, 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 don't, I don't think so. I don't think the blessed hope that Paul was saying was to these believers, hey, you're going to go through wars and floods and earthquakes and all sorts of things, but I'll tell you what, it's a blessed hope. Bless God. No, no. No, no, that's not the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the great appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Another reason I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture is examples in the Scripture. You know, there's pictures or types in the Bible. Was not Noah saved from uh, that aspect of the flood? Rahab, I just read earlier on this week about Rahab tying that red scarlet cord out of her window, and she was saved. Lot is another example. Genesis chapter 19, verse 22, the angel said, Haste thee, escape hither, for I cannot do anything, that is, bring judgment to this, to this city, till thou come hither. Beautiful examples in Scripture, but then the last one is promises that are made. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, Romans chapter 5 verse 9, all are great promises of Scripture. Now those things help me understand something. As I put all of this together and I look at these building blocks, I have to look at something. You know, God's preserving me. God's allowing me an opportunity to miss the tribulation. But you won't miss the tribulation if it happens coming up soon and you're without Jesus Christ. My friend, for you to be raptured, for you to go home to glory, to be with God forever, you have to know Jesus as your Savior. So that's number one is the rapture that I see. But I want you to notice now verses 2 through 8, the scene in heaven, all right? There's a rapture of the believer I see in the first couple of verses, but now look at the scene in heaven. If you read through chapter 4, at least a dozen times, here's a word that you see mentioned. Throne. Throne. Now, it's very evident as you read through it. 
And what the apostle sees next is based upon four phrases. I want you to look at these four phrases. Look at verse number two, the end of that verse. One sat on the throne. So on the throne. Look at verse number four. You see the phrase round about the throne? Look at verse number five, out of the throne. And then verse number six, before the throne. Now, I'd encourage you to do something. Either take a pen or a pencil and mark your Bible, circle those words or underline them. They're very important. On the throne, round about the throne, out of the throne, before the throne. Let's just kind of look at these one at a time. Notice here in verses 2 to 3, the one who sits on the throne. Now look at this. Immediately I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Now you say, preacher, who was that? Was God, that God the Father? Was that God the Son? Or was that God the Holy Spirit? I think the triune God is what John saw on that throne. You see, in the next chapter, it is Jesus that is there before the throne. Later on, we read in this chapter that uh, the one who is on the throne has upon him the seven spirits, referring to the Holy Spirit, that is portrayed in seven different ways. And so the triune God is seen on this throne. And is it not amazing that when John gets to heaven in the Spirit, the first thing that catches his eye is the one who sits on the throne. When you talk about heaven, what do you talk about? Oh, the streets of gold. Oh, the walls of jasper. Oh, these type of things. My friend, all that is going to pale in comparison to the one who died for you. The God in heaven who loves you and has made it possible for you to be there. John saw the one who sat on the throne. Oh, there's some amazing sights about this one who's on the throne. His description is not given necessarily in human characteristics, but the description of the one on the throne is in terms of brilliance and color, which is the emphasis of precious stones. Notice this. The one who's on the throne has the appearance like of jasper. Now, when we think of jasper, we might think of some type of opaque stone, But if you look down at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, verse number 11, it describes the jasper stone, which I believe is the same one here, is a very clear, pure stone, almost like what we would say be a diamond. But also there's a sardius stone. That is a blood red stone, almost like a ruby. And these two stones together speak of sacrifice and glory. The one who gave his life but now is seated on the throne. But notice, not only the stones are the one who sat on, but there was a rainbow. Now, when you look up at a rainbow after, after it rains, what, what do you, how much of a rainbow do you see? It's just a part of it. Sometimes there's maybe a quarter of it, maybe a little section. You might see a, a, whole, a half of a circle there. But you know what's interesting about this? This is one complete whole rainbow. I believe it's speaking of the eternality of Jesus, the fact that there is no beginning, no ending with God. 
And the emphasis of the color here is that of an emerald color. That color green, if you will, sticks out in an even greater way. So I'll tell you, it's very interesting, the one who's on the throne. But notice those who were around the throne, verse number four. Look at this. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders. Now, right off the bat, I'll just tell you what I believe these are. I believe these 24 elders are representatives of the redeemed, the church. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, notice what they're wearing. What's on their head? Crowns. Does not the Bible talk about the the angels? You never see angels in heaven wearing crowns because a lot of people would read this and go, well, this must refer to angels. No, no. You never see the Bible referencing angels wearing crowns. But believers wear crowns. And the specific crown that is worn here that is spoken of is a victor's crown. You and I someday who will be there in heaven, if you're saved, will be there because of the victory that Jesus Christ won at Calvary. And you'll be given a crown. But they're clothed in white raiment, speaking of the purity, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given. But I believe the number 24 is very representative of something. You say, what is it? Well, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament and look at the Levitical priesthood, it's very interesting that when David set up the Levitical priesthood, he set up 24 different orders. So he had so many Levites in this group and so many in this group and so many in this group, and there were 24 of them. And every two weeks, one representative of each 24 groups would work in the temple. And you know what's very interesting as you read the Old Testament that when those 24 priests were there working in the temple, though there were hundreds, probably thousands of other priests, those priests, 24 of them, represented the whole group. You know what these 24 elders represent? All of us who are born again. All of us who are redeemed in Jesus Christ It's amazing the song that they sing in verses 10 through 11 come from those who are redeemed. But notice verse number 5, that which comes out of the throne. Look at this. Pretty amazing stuff here. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Now, I don't know about the voices. We're not told what the voices say. But think about the lightning here for a minute. Think about the thunder. You go back to Exodus chapter 19. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, God's giving the law. Look at Exodus chapter 20 as the law is being given. The Bible describes that there were lightnings and thunderings that were coming forth. What was that representative of? It was God showing that he was dealing with sin and that those who disobeyed God, there was judgment to follow. And I'm telling you here today, with these lightnings and thunderings coming out of this throne just uh, just like what took place at Mount Sinai when the law was given, God is impressing upon John his power and judgment upon sin. But then look at verses 5 through 8. There are those who are before the throne. Before the throne. That's pretty interesting what's before the throne. Verse 6. There was a sea of glass. 
like unto crystal. Now, I know in your spare study, you like to study the temple and the tabernacle, and I bet you all of you are very familiar with every bit of furniture in the tabernacle, correct? Good. Praise God. I'm so glad. But if you go back and you look at the original tabernacle that God had established in the wilderness, there was a piece of furniture known as the laver. As the priest came in, he was to wash himself, and that was a sign, a sense of cleansing before he did God's work. In Solomon's temple, it's not necessarily called the laver, but it's called a sea. Now, when we think of a sea, we think of a large body of water, but this is an area of water, and again, all of it is for the sense of cleansing. But is it not interesting that this sea is of glass, crystal, that means it is it's, it's almost like the water is frozen. It's all one piece. You know why? Because when we get to heaven, we need no more cleansing. We've been cleansed. God has forgiven us of all of our sin. How beautiful this is. But notice what else is before the throne. There were four beasts. Look at verse number uh, six here. Four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Kind of seems a little odd here. These created beings can see all around. I believe they're probably angels. And and when comparing Scripture, I have to say to myself, well, wait a minute. I've seen something like this before. You go back to the book of Ezekiel, and you read about some beasts that are very similar to what John described. In fact, as you read the next verses, look at the four faces that are on them. That of a lion, a calf... Uh, 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 the face of a man, one like a flying eagle. You know, you see some of those same representations in Ezekiel's vision. But in Ezekiel's vision, the the beast that he saw only had six had six wings instead of four, which are given here. But now we move a little further on in Scripture. We come to the book of Isaiah, and we see some other angelic beings, and we're not told anything about their faces. But we do know that they have six wings, and they do something that helps bring something together. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw these beasts, they cry out before God. Do you remember the three words they give? Holy, holy, holy. Very same thing given in Revelation chapter number 4. And I believe in looking at this description and I see these angels, what are they there for? Well, I, I think, first of all, they're there to minister before God, crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, that who was and is and is now to come. They're giving praise to God. They're attending unto Him and giving praise. But they're also there to take care of the judgment that is to come. In Revelation chapter 6, In Revelation chapter 15, you see mention of these beasts once again. And I believe that with these four faces, what you're given is how they direct the judgment. They have a face like a lion. There's strength in those judgments that are going to be poured out in Revelation. They render service like an ox. They possess intelligence like the highest of God's creation. And like the swiftness of an eagle, those judgments in Revelation 6 through chapter 16 are going to be poured out and unleashed on this earth. 
these four beasts, crying out to God, holy, 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 but yet they're administering justice. But I want you to get to the last part, and I'm done. Frivolous words of a preacher, I know. But look at verses 9 through 11. This is the praise around the throne. Now, after the service is over, you and I could probably have a discussion about who or what the creatures are around the throne. But there's no doubt in my mind what they're doing. They are giving praise to the one who's on the throne. Think about that. Praise to the one who's on the throne. It seems that from reading this passage of Scripture that one of our main functions in heaven will be giving praise and adoration and glory to God throughout all eternity. Now, some of you, when you think about that, you're like, really? Is that all heaven's about? You know, you got this old-fashioned image in your mind like you're going to be sitting on some cloud with some little harp and just kind of, praise God, praise God, praise God. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Heaven's much more than that. I think you're going to be involved in work for God. I believe that we'll be involved in helping God uh, in the aspect of what He creates and administering things for His vast universe. But I'm here to tell you that all through what we do, we will be giving praise and adoration and glory to the one who's made it all possible. Amen. Well, you say to yourself, well, pastor, I can't sing. And I, I would agree. I've heard some of you sing, and I, I understand that. But the Bible says to make a joyful noise under the Lord. Your neighbor might not think it's joyful, but God listening to you is thrilled over the praise of his people because he's the one that's to receive all glory. And I think some of us just maybe we don't sing enough here and we, we don't like our voice or maybe we're a little confused of what worship really is. You know, we have this, uh, this whole uh, thing conjured up in our mind. Well, boy, if I'm going to worship God, then, then I, I got I I to get, get in it. You know, we kind of have this idea of, of kind of getting into it and, and maybe there's enough musicians and some type of band up here to kind of get me in the spirit and oh, oh boy, I'm, I'm moving around now and boy, I'm in the spirit. I'm telling you what, all of that that I have seen many times is very, very fleshly. But I'm here to tell you something that when I hear the truths of who God is, and I sing the songs that we sang earlier, boy, my heart begins to well up, and I begin to sing out and give praise to God. Why? Because of the truth that I know about God. And you know why many of us do not worship? Why we don't understand worship? Because we don't know God. I'm telling you, if you got to know God, and you fellowship with Him, and you communed with Him, and you spent time in the Word of God, it would do nothing but cause you 
to give worship to God. How does that look? It might be singing a song. It might be telling others about what God's done for you. But in some form or fashion, you will give credit to God and glory to Him. But our problem is we live for our credit, not God's. Is it not interesting in the last couple of verses here that the worship that the 24 elders give and the representatives of all the church is literally they fall down before God and worshiping Him. And they take their crowns and they put their crowns down because it's not about me and, oh, look at, you see these jewels up here? Look at this. Oh, no, no, no. It's none of that. The crowns are set down and all the glory goes to God. But look at why they're giving glory. Look at the last verse. Chapter 4, verse number 11. Look at this. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Look right up here. Do you know why God created you? For Him. For Him. Why is it that you are living for you? Why is it that you are living for someone else on this earth? I understand obligations of relationships. I understand husband and wife. I understand parent-child. I understand uh, uh, a worker and uh, one who hires. But I'm here to tell you, in all that we do, in all that we say, in every aspect of our lives... All the glory ought to go to Him. Now you say to yourself, Pastor, I'm not used to doing that. Start getting used to it now. Because if you're saved, you're going to be in heaven, and everything you do will not be about you. It'll all be about Him. Isn't it amazing? When John's transported in spirit, the first thing he sees is that throne. He sees all sorts of things that are coming out of the throne, before the throne. But all of a sudden, he's compelled, along with these 24 elders, to give worship to the one who sits on the throne. How powerful. I want to encourage you today to start living a life that in everything you say and everything you do gives honor and glory to the one who created you.